Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 5, The Dementor. Tom woke Harry the next morning with his usual toothless grin and a cup of tea. Harry got dressed and was just persuading a disgruntled Hedwig to get back into her cage when Ron banged his way into the room, pulling a sweatshirt over his head and looking. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, as you know, twice a year I like to go on like a little retreat. So I go to this wonderful Episcopal monastery just outside of Boston. And I really love luxuriating in the time away. It's time away from work and email and stress. And so I like to bring things with me that help me relax. And I have a list, things that I like to bring with me. So, you know, I like to have a candle and obviously you need matches for the candle, a little songbook, delicious chocolate, bath salts, you know, a whole list of things. Well, last time that I went, I was like, great. I've got my list. I know what to pack. So the night before, I'm like, let's put everything in the bag. There's the candle. There's the songbook, right? There's the lovely throw, which I wrap myself in. And, you know, I took the bus. I arrived at the monastery. I settle into my room. And that night, I notice, oh, I don't have my toothbrush. And the next morning, I realize, oh, I don't have any clean T-shirts or socks. And so I spent three and a half days wearing the same clothes, luxuriating in the delicious bath salts and chocolate. But I had completely forgotten to pack the basics. And, you know, I'm a person who loves lists. I keep lists for all sorts of things. But it's not always the most helpful thing to do. You know, I have lists of 89 baby names, but I'm probably not going to have 89 babies. And as we were reading this chapter through the theme of foresight, I started to think what I've always considered a good thing, you know, having the foresight to make plans and lists and things, maybe it gets in the way of actually the essentials and of being present and of living the life that I have rather than, you know, with all these lists, the different lives that I can imagine for myself. Maybe it gets in the way of having clean underwear, for example. It might have done. (laughs) Luckily, the monks can't talk to me, so no one told me I smell bad. All right, let's crack on. You ready for the 30-second recap? My bath salts are all packed, so I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. The Weasleys, Hermione, and Harry all go to King's Cross Station, and as they're boarding at Platform 93 Quarters, Mr. Weasley is like, Harry, I have something to tell you. Serious Black, don't go after him no matter what. And Harry's like, why would I ever do that? And then they get on the train. And Lupin is in the car with Harry, Ron, and Hermione, but he's asleep. And then a Dementor comes, and Lupin wakes up and casts away the 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 Dementor and gives them all chocolate. And then they arrive, but Harry and Hermione get pulled away, and um, Hermione gets something that makes her happy. 
you did that in time. But barely, I know. Are you ready? I'm ready. On your mark, get set, go. This chapter is really a story of three men. First, we see that Mr. Weasley is super suave. He doesn't run at the barrier into platform nine and three quarters. He leans. He's so nonchalant, like he just leans. So first of all, Mr. Weasley is a total hero. Then we have Lupin, like looking kind of raggedy, but he's, you know, pretending to be asleep. But then he scares away the Dementum. We see him use a Patronus charm for the first time. Also, he scares away Malfoy, so 10 points for him. And then Hagrid is there collecting the first years. But like all these first years are terrified because Dementors are everywhere, including next to the school gates. Boom. You know how to end a 30-second recap, Kyle. You really do. I feel like it's like cheerleading. As long as you smile, the audience will believe you. <laughs> you stuck the landing, even though you have a broken ankle, but you're smiling. Exactly. Where do you want to start as we dive into foresight, Vanessa? I want to start with Remus Lupin. First of all, I'm just excited to see him. It's just nice to have Lupin with us. But what I find so interesting, and it had never occurred to me until we read this chapter through this theme, and I think this is very much to your point of packing lists. Lupin, we know that he's like quite poor and he, you know, has these raggedy clothes and looks really like emaciated and unhealthy, except when the Dementors come and he needs to dole out chocolate, he suddenly has this rich Honeyduke's chocolate. I feel like the only reason he would have that is as a defense against the dark arts teacher, he had the foresight of saying, I might need this with students, given that there are going to be dementors around. Well, I, th- I think you're misunderstanding because Lupin thinks he's going on retreat at a monastery called Hogwarts. <laughs> so all he has is chocolate and bath salts. He's got bath salts for the next attack. <laughs> Okay, but really, what do you think of my theory? I actually think it's really smart. And, you know, we do hear Madame Pomfrey later say, wow, finally, we've got a defense against the Dark Arts teacher who knows his healing potions. And this is the great gift that Lupin brings. Finally, we have a competent teacher and a competent wizard who is actually going to be helpful to these students as they prepare to fight the Dark Arts. So this makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting to me that, you know, we see him not only with chocolate, but also with the Patrona spell. He is powerful enough to ward off the Dementors. And this is going to be the big challenge for Harry in this whole book is to learn those two arts, this kind of the self-protection piece and then the protecting of others. So I think this makes a lot of sense. I think Lupin is the kind of guy who would pack ahead of time and be like, listen, actually, I don't need a toothbrush because Hogwarts probably has a stash, right? House elves are going to be there to help. But what I do need for this journey is something that will help a student recover from a Dementor visit. It shows his compassion. It shows how he's already thinking so generously. It also shows to me that being a good caretaker requires foresight. You have to be present with a person. You have to be listening to a person to be a good caretaker. I feel like so much of being a good parent is having snacks in your backpack and sort of being ready, having Band-Aids on you, because there's nothing that creates a greater sense of safety for someone who's vulnerable than having a very competent person present. And sometimes that requires literal tools. And it requires you showing up. You know, I don't think Lupin had to take the train. Most of the other teachers don't take the train. None of the other teachers take the train. Right. Or they take it early or something else is going on. But he's choosing to be on the train with the students. So he's already putting himself in a place of journeying alongside. And he's not going like Gilderoy would have, being like, hello, nice to meet you. I'm the new teacher. Hello, hello. He's just like, I'm going to take a nap until I'm needed, and then I'm here. Yeah, I have never thought of that. I always thought there was like a class or financial reason why he was on the train. But I love this theory that he had the foresight of, you know, they're going to be dementors. My job is to defend 
defend against the dark arts and to teach defense against the dark arts. And that starts now. And so I'm going to put myself with the students in case dark arts are around. I love that idea. Well, and I think what you're helping me see right now is that he's already positioning the Dementors as the dark arts. Like at this stage, we still see them as employees of Azkaban, that they are at the service of the ministry. Lord knows they won't be forever. But I think he's making a moral stand by saying like, this is not okay. We shouldn't be exposing children to these terrifying, I don't even want to call them beasts, like specters of doom. And I'm going to make sure I'm there to help ensure everything is okay. And he is needed. Yeah. So let's compare how Lupin engages foresight to prepare to protect his students with the way the Weasleys do it. Because Arthur pulls Harry aside just before the train leaves. Also, Arthur, bad timing that Harry has to literally run onto a moving train, like not helpful, Arthur. So he tells Harry, listen, I don't want you to go looking for trouble. And Harry's like, why on earth would I go looking for a serial killer? And of course, Harry doesn't yet know that Sirius is his godfather. But Mr. Weasley is trying to inform Harry without giving him the full picture. And I feel like that's a different way of engaging that kind of planning, foresightful element of protecting yourself than what Lupin does, which is very much by leading by example. He doesn't try and explain, oh, Dementors try and suck the happiness out of you. It's a very experiential mode of education. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Oh, Lupin is definitely an experiential teacher. What's beautiful about Mr. Weasley's moment with Harry is that he has the foresight of knowing Harry well enough to be like, hey, no matter what you hear, promise me. He's trying to catch Harry in a bind, right? He's trying to make a contract with Harry before Harry has all the information and do that for Harry's own good. He's like, someone is going to tell you that Sirius Black is the one who killed your parents. When you find that out, you're going to want to go kill him. No matter what, remember, you've promised me that you wouldn't go after him. So he's having the foresight to know that someone like Draco Malfoy is going to spill the beans. He's having the foresight that Harry is going to want to go after him. But I agree with you. It's so futile what he does that you like wonder why he does it. It's like a soup that doesn't really have much in it. You're like, why am I even eating this soup? Why doesn't he just tell Harry the whole truth? Yeah. I mean, especially after Harry is like, I already know. I think that this is your sort of list without your socks because Mr. Weasley decided on what the plan was the night before. And when he's faced with a different circumstance, which is that Harry already has the information, he doesn't change his plan, especially after Harry says to him, why would I go looking for someone, right? Harry reveals himself to be more thoughtful than Mr. Weasley had anticipated. So why doesn't Mr. Weasley answer the question and be like, look, you're going to find out it's really complicated and serious New York parents. But no matter what, the best way you can honor your parents is by staying alive. Right. And I think this is where I want to talk about the fact that this conversation happens in the train station. Because to me, that in itself is such a difficult place to have a difficult conversation, right? ton of people are around you. You're standing up. Maybe you can't hear each other well because of the loud steam and the noise. And he has to get on a train in five minutes. So the whole thing feels stressed and compressed when what we know when you have to have a difficult conversation, and I just had to have one recently, you want to prepare yourself for it. You want to make sure that you've kind of told the other person, hey, there's a couple important things that we want to discuss together. And you've got to set the safety of the container around it so that you won't be disturbed, that you are clear on what you want to say. And I feel like Arthur lets us down there. And also just that you say everything you mean to say and don't say anything you don't mean to say. I know that 
when I have to have a difficult conversation with someone, I need a lot of time cushion around so that I can think before any sentence I say to make sure that I really mean that sentence. And I need time at the end to make sure that I didn't say anything that I need to apologize for. But I do understand that instinct. There's even a term for it, right? A doorknob confession, where like right before you walk out the door, you're like, by the way, I love you. Bye. Right? Like, by the way, your godfather's going to come kill you. Bye. Yeah, exactly. Right. When you're anxious about the other person's reaction, you intentionally have a conversation with them that has an end point. That's true. And I mean, it's not easy to have these conversations. So I, I get that, Arthur. But like, <sighs> he also, I feel like the other reason he might wait to the last moment is because even though we hear him say we should tell Harry and Molly say we shouldn't, I'm sure that's also an internal dialogue within him. He doesn't know what the right thing to do is. And then at the last second, he has Harry right in front of him. And he's like, look, I have to tell you this thing. So, Casper, do you mind if we step back for a second? Because I feel like we're using the word foresight and I just want us to agree on a definition. Like, what is the difference between foresight and foreshadowing? And what is the difference between foresight and planning? And what is the difference between foresight and fate? I guess the definition for foresight is about being able to predict, you know, what will happen. So there's some kind of accurate insight into the future in some way. But I think the difference between foresight and something like planning is that there's something scary about foresight as well, because not everything that's coming to us is going to be good. And I think it can mean that we live in a kind of apprehensive state for difficult things that are coming. I mean, what struck me in this chapter is how we know that Harry, Ron and Hermione are going to have to engage Malfoy, Crabbe and Goyle. It happens every year. They're in the same year. They're going to be in the same classes. And I feel like, to some extent, maybe Harry is choosing not to think about Malfoy over the summer, right? Not to put that presence of frustration and bullying in his head so that he doesn't have to deal with it. But the price of that is when Malfoy shows up, Harry's like, and like doesn't have anything to say and is kind of lost and spluttering and all all over the place. Hasn't learned anything from last year because he hasn't processed it and thought about it. Exactly. The only reason that Malfoy leaves is because Lupin keeps being in the way. So I think there's something about the difference between kind of planning and foresight in that way, because if Harry had planned for this year, he'd have maybe written down a series of really witty retorts or, you know, worked on his fisticuffs or at least something that would have prepared him to face this guy who he just doesn't like and has to deal with all the time. You know, my father grew up in communism and with a lot of charismatic dictators in his life. And so when the rest of the world was saying that Trump didn't have a chance, my father was like, you guys are all idiots. Trump has a real chance. My father called that Trump would win the nomination and then that Trump would win. And I feel like that foresight did nothing for him except create anxiety before everybody else. So he had foresight based on hindsight, right, based on past experience. But because he wasn't able to translate that foresight into a plan or into any sort of productive action, it was a curse and not a blessing. Foresight is only helpful when it's either good news, like I'm definitely going to get tickets to that live show. I'm going to. Or if, you know, there's some planning, right, of like, okay, I know that cancer runs in my family, so I'm going to get regular breast exams and then I'll be able to intervene early or whatever it is. But there's this middle ground where foresight is really just a curse. 
I really like that distinction. And and in some ways, maybe this validates what Harry does because he's like, listen, you know, I can't really do anything practical. Maybe there are limits to my planning of engaging Malfoy. And so I'm just going to ignore him over the summer when I'm not around him and I'll deal with the reality of him when I'm back at school. So I don't know, maybe I should let him off the hook. But I do want to say there is one moment where Harry really fails in his foresight. If you've been given chocolate by Lupin, don't tell Madame Pomfrey you've already had some. <laughs> Let her give you more. <laughs> it's the rookiest of rookie mistakes. That's the kind of planning which we know is necessary. Right? Hoard chocolate. Someone offers you chocolate, the answer is yes 100% of the time. Vanessa, before we finish thinking about this theme of foresight, where else did you see it in the chapter? So there is this funny little undercurrent of romance in this chapter. Mm -hmm. So the chapter starts with Percy being upset that Ron has spilled on Penelope Clearwater on Percy's girlfriend. And then we watch Percy and Penelope get reunited and be smoochy. Then Ron and Harry walk in on Mrs. Weasley talking to Hermione and Ginny about love potions. And that's interesting because it's the two girls talking about love potions and their two future boyfriends walk (sighs) in. Their two future husbands walk in. And then Ginny and Harry, when they see Percy and Penelope kissing, look at each other and like smile and laugh. I wonder if romantic energy or platonic energy is a sort of foresight. And not to make this about how much I love you, but I remember the first time we hung out, it was in a group of several people. And I remember thinking the only person I really want to hang out with here is that guy, Casper. And I feel like that's a kind of foresight, feeling a connection with someone I wouldn't have been able to say. And then four years from now, he'll be in my life every day. But there was like a, hmm, he's fun. Well, and the other thing is that I feel like Harry and Ginny's reaction when the Dementors come is the closest, right? We hear a lot about how Harry faints, perhaps, and falls onto the floor. But Ginny is having a severe reaction also, while most of the other folks are, you know, they're scared, but it's not terrifying. I mean, the description is even that Ginny looks as sick as Harry feels. So there's like a real kinship in their reaction, which has to go back to their relationship to Voldemort, which is in part what connects them. No doubt. So I I really like that idea that there are moments where you get a hint of what might become. And I wonder if that's potential or is it foresight or is it hindsight that we know what happens and then look back on these moments and say, oh, that's what I was feeling. I don't know. I think, though, if you are aware of the potential with someone, then you can reach out to them and at least see, right? So I do think that sometimes those like antenna moments are a sort of foresight that can lead us to making plans and taking action. And yeah, and sometimes it doesn't work out. And I don't think that even necessarily means that our foresight was wrong. And I think we see a sign of that with the sneakoscope. The sneakoscope is so interesting to me in this chapter because it's actually right. The sneakoscope starts going off when Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle are about to come and the Dementors are coming. And then it turns out that the sneakoscope was right about all of the other times people have misbehaved. But it's also a projection of Ron. Ron is like, oh, it's probably a bad sneakoscope because I bought it and I can't afford much. So I feel like this sneakoscope is a symbol of foresight and of reflection. It's all of the different things that come into play when we try to sort of predict the future. 
Oh, I always thought it was scabbers, but I like that there are kind of multi-layered sneaker scope warnings going off at the same time. Let's be honest, like in Harry Potter world, sneaker scope should always be going off. That's for real. Casper, for today's spiritual practice, we are going to do pardes. Yippee! I know, I'm really excited. So pardes is a Jewish practice. It's sort of the Jewish equivalent of Lectio Divina. It is a reading practice in four stages, but the stages are a little bit different. So the first step is pshat, which is what is just the literal surface meaning of the passage. The second step is remez. So what are the hints that this passage is leading us towards? What does it remind us of? What is it pushing us to see and think about? Symbols, etc.? The next step is drash. And one of the ways to do drash, which I would be interested in doing today, is seeing where else in the text so far we have seen similar symbols, similar moments, similar words, and really mapping those words out and trying to see when they get used. And then the last step is called sod. And that just means secret. And so what secret is possibly under this passage that we weren't able to see before we engaged in the practice of pardes? So, Casper, are you ready to hear what passage I have picked? I'm so curious. So the passage that I chose is, The cold went deeper than his skin. It was inside his chest. It was inside his very heart. Ooh. Even just you reading those sentences alone makes me realize how strong they are. Like in the narrative, they kind of get lost a little bit. That's kind of scary. Yeah. And so this is the moment when Harry foresees a Dementor. And this is the feeling that he gets. It's just this wave of, as this sentence says, the coldness. There's a real temperature change when a Dementor enters the room. And he feels that iciness reach right into his body, into his very heart. That's the pshat. Yes, that is the literal direct meaning. So the next step is remez. So what hidden or symbolic things are in this? Obviously, the dementors literally make things cold. But when we talk about things like a frozen heart, I feel like we're talking about something else. Yeah, I mean, if you just think of what's a cold-hearted person, right? Someone who's not compassionate. It's someone who's not feeling. So there's something not only about the temperature that's changing, but it's about Harry's very nature, his empathy, his love, his his sense of connection to other people is disappearing in this moment, which is terrifying. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. The dementors often get compared to depression, that it's all hope is lost, all sense of happiness. Ron later says, I felt as though I would never be happy again. But the other part of that is you become cold-hearted. You also lose your ability to love, to empathize, to create joy for other people. If you lose the ability to feel joy, you also can't create joy. Yeah, and I think especially the details that we get here, it was inside his chest. What's inside our chests? There's these very internal vital organs which are possessed by this cold I just feel like there's no better way at illustrating a complete hostile takeover, you know, of Harry's very being. Right. So this coldness is almost an infection. It's making me wonder if even though once a Dementor leaves and you eat chocolate, you feel better. I wonder if your heart is always just a little bit weakened by a Dementor. 
or if just like chocolate brings back your immediate physical signs, you need to re-engage with love and community and connection to rebuild that little piece of heart. You know, that was taken away by a Dementor. Right. I think it can heal. Yeah, I'm wondering. So I always took it to be that chocolate's healing power is sort of like a self-care thing for people who are depressed, right? Like just indulge yourself a little when you're depressed and do what you have to do to take care of yourself. Maybe I'm projecting that when I'm depressed, chocolate has a new appeal to me. But that's how I always took it. But in light of how much crap I've talked about Dumbledore giving chocolate to Ginny after she was attacked, I wonder if chocolate has magical properties in the wizarding world beyond Dementors. Oh, my goodness. I'm just beginning to realize maybe we've all been very shut in our reading of how chocolate is used as a, as a formula. Maybe they pump some extra magical stuff into those chocolate bars so that basically there's easy medicine everywhere. Just like we put fluoride in our water system, the magical world has the foresight to put some like delicious anti-dementor stuff and like anti-fear stuff into every chocolate bar and hot chocolate drink. I mean, we lace sugar in pediatric amoxicillin too, right? Like a spoonful of sugar helps the, the medicine medicine. go down. Exactly. <laughs> but no, what do we think that chocolate might be a symbol for? I feel like the fact that it's always an adult <laughs> a little bit forcing a kid to have chocolate. It's the person in your life who's like, okay, I know that you don't really want me to show up for you, but I'm showing up for you anyway. It's a persistent love when you are in distress. You know what this is reminding me of? When Harry and Ron first meet, their bonding is over chocolate frogs. And Ron is the one who keeps showing up for Harry throughout these books. I love that idea. I love that that chocolate is the language of connection and of care. So if the hidden meaning of chocolate is where we came with Remes, let's dig into the drush. Right. So for drush, the challenge that I set for us was to use a very traditional Jewish practice, which is to think about when these words are used in other places. So I'm wondering if any of these words stand out to you as being in other places in the books that we've read so far. And so the whole sentence is, the cold went deeper than his skin. It was inside his chest. It was inside his very heart. The word that jumps out at me is skin. And I'm thinking of the end of book two when, you know, Harry's walking towards the basilisk and he sees this enormous dead old skin of the basilisk, right? Which he first mistakes as the actual beast, but then realizes it's the skin that the basilisk used to have. And for me, this is this is a healing sign. And, and the snake is, of course, the old symbol for health and healthcare and doctors and things. And there's this sense that skin can be renewed, which is true, right? When we think about our own bodies and the cells that we're made up of, within seven years, there's not a single cell that was there seven years ago. We are completely reformed. There's this self-generating healing component to who we are like that healing is in our body and so I'm, I'm just really stuck on there is so much trauma in these books and these dementors are so cruel and horrible and yet what we're being given even in this moment of suffering is a promise of transformation and that I just I love that how about you like what word do you recognize from elsewhere in the text for some reason, Casper, the word inside really stood out to me. Harry has to go inside the Dursley's house. He has to go inside Hogwarts. He has to go inside the trapdoor. He has to go inside the Chamber of Secrets. 
often the word inside makes me think of like a hearth and is a shelter from the storm. But inside for Harry, I feel like often means a challenge. He goes inside the Gryffindor common room and there are places throughout the books where inside becomes something more and more beautiful and comforting. But even the Hogwarts Express, he goes inside the Hogwarts Express, but he's always chasing it. Like the first year, he didn't understand how to find it. The second year, he didn't even make it. This third year, he's chasing it, and it's like getting away from him, and then Dementors attack. I feel like Harry is constantly having to chase to get inside things. Well, more than that, you know, the place that he loves, Hogwarts, which is home, this is the first year where he consciously wants to have permission, right, to go to Hogsmeade. He wants to have permission to leave, to go outside, and it's not being given to him. Like, he's physically being kept in by these Dementors. So, I think that's really interesting that there is something a little frightening about the forcefulness of this being inside. Yeah, like my life feels like one that's pretty fluid. And at this point, I feel as though I'm allowed to be inside the rooms that I really want to be in. But I remember that feeling, you know, when I was younger and earlier in my career and where there were rooms where I didn't have access to and there were groups I wanted to be inside. And I feel like... Harry is still very much in a place where doors are being slammed and there are doors he has to force his way into and inside is a challenge and not an invitation for him. Right. So the last step of Pardes is sowed, and that means secret or mystery. And so the question is sort of, you know, what is the mystical meaning here? What secret is potentially being revealed to us? And I'll I'll read the sentences just one last time. The cold went deeper than his skin. It was inside his chest. It was inside his very heart. And just to remind ourselves, we don't find the sowed through reason. The sowed, like, arrives or it doesn't. It's not arriving for me. Is it arriving for you? So I had a bit of an epiphany while reading it this last time, which is all we see of Harry's horcrux is a lightning-shaped scar. It's skin deep. But we find out later that the Horcrux, Voldemort's mark on him, goes deeper than his skin. It's inside his chest. It's inside his very heart. It attacks his heart in that it takes his parents away and that he has to carry this Horcrux around with him. He has to sacrifice himself later. I mean, and the reason that he feels the Dementors stronger than other people might have something to do with the fact that he has this evil that's touched him. And so I do wonder if there's an argument that Yes, your heart can restore, but it's always changed by moments like these. I don't know, but this definitely reminded me of the fact that Harry is a horcrux. The thing I really like about that idea is that it's beyond what Harry understands about himself, right? This is such a perplexing experience. He's like, why am I the only one who's fainting? And I think we're just seeing that who Harry is and what he is physically, maybe spiritually made of is beyond his own understanding, that there is a kind of literally a spell bind on him that he has no control or understanding of, but that maybe Lupin does. This week's voicemail is from Catherine Gilbert, who works for an airline company and compares her position of power in making a decision as to when a situation requires some leniency due to compassion to Fudge's decision as to whether or not Harry deserves leniency with his interaction with Aunt Marge versus going to Hogsmeade. Where I think everything's overreaching is when 
very try to ask for the Hogsmeade letter. I'm going to compare that to a, a client that said, I want to have the economic price of a ticket airline, but I have the business class cabin. It doesn't work that way. So I can be compassionate. I can give you a free ticket to go see your dead grandma. Will I put you on business class? No, because you have an economic ticket. Same thing for Harry. I'm going to disregard the, the, the rules that you blew your aunt because I want you safe. But do I want you to go to Oxmead? It's not necessary. So no, I won't do it. And I think it is clever and really responsible for Caroline Svoch to do, which I never thought I would say, because he put a limit. And it's not because he's Harry Potter that he's going to have everything. I think that it's so to everyone that, okay, even Harry Potter, the boy wonder, have to follow the rules. And the Ministry of Magic won't go that far to make sure Harry's happy. They don't want Harry happy. They want his safety. And that's where I don't think it's a double standard. Cornelius wasn't there to make Harry happy and be his dad. He was there to be the minister of magic who protect the kid. That's what he did. Thanks so much, Catherine. Yeah, and I think you're right. Maybe I was a little harsh on Fudge and, you know, accusing him of inconsistency. And I think you are right. He's not the person to give, you know, Harry permission to go to Hogsmeade. But I'm glad that you're able to make exceptions for those passengers who need to get home on time. If I were prime minister, I would be giving special permission to everybody. I I should not be in government. That's why I wouldn't vote for you. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, go to Hogsmeade. You do you. You do you. Vanessa, it's time for us to offer a blessing. Who are you blessing this week? This week, I would like to bless the woman on the Hogwarts Express who sells candy and treats. First of all, bless her heart for being the only grown-up on the train most years. That sounds insane to me. But she does this job with such compassion and joviality and thoughtfulness. Harry and Hermione try to wake up Lupin, and she says to them, don't worry about it. You know, if he wakes up and he's hungry, I can come back. And I just think that there's such sweetness to this woman. And I feel like she probably has a story. And it just reminds me of all of the people who come in and out of my life for just a moment, are kind to me, and then disappear. And so I'd like to offer a blessing for all of the people who we could all have connections with, but instead we just have a moment of interaction. And because life is the way it is, we don't get to get to know each other's stories. Casper, who do you want to bless this week? My blessing is for Hagrid. You know, we're going to find out that he has become the new professor for Care of Magical Creatures. So he is probably terrified right now. I just remember that feeling when you're about to do something new, something for the first time. It makes you just feel so small. And I just hope Hagrid is like doing okay as he steps into that new role. So for anyone who's going to try something new or has a new responsibility or a new job, this blessing is for you. Thank you, Casper. Thank you, Vanessa. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Be sure to go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com, and book tickets for our live shows. We have them in Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and L.A., and now on sale, Philadelphia, New York City, and Washington, D.C. Do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and join us next week when we read Chapter 6, Talons and Tea Leaves, through the theme of forgiveness. This podcast was produced by Ariana Nedelman, Casper Kyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. 
This week, we would like to thank Ashley Gilbertson for donating to our crowdfunder, Catherine Gilbert for sending in our voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Paulsell. And a special note on Stephanie Paulsell. So we always want to thank Stephanie, and very excitingly, you have an opportunity where you can hang out with Stephanie this summer. She is teaching a class through the Harvard Extension School that Casper and I have both taken called Journey and Quest, in which you read some really classic literature, and it's about pilgrimages and journeys in and external. And so if you're in the Boston Cambridge area, that's something we really recommend exploring and it's time with Stephanie Paulsell, which is just a good thing. Thank you and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Why yada? Why yada, Malfoy? <laughs> to the moon and back, Malfoy.